I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. My guest today is someone who has actually literally helped me get through the past four years. Maggie Smith is the author of three books of poetry, Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, and Lamp of the Body. Her latest book, Keep Moving, notes on loss, creativity, and change, a collection of essays and quotes, is a national bestseller. Welcome, Maggie. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. I I, so I think um, maybe a lot of my listeners may have heard or seen your poem, Good Bones, a viral poem. It, it happens. <laughs> tell, tell me about that. Tell me about <laughs> having a poem go viral and you're not Ruby Core. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's it's a really strange thing. I say the, the poem really feels like it's public domain work <laughs> to me now. Um, it doesn't, I feel in some ways sort of divorced from it as its author, which is a strange thing because I don't feel that way about any of my other poems. They still feel distinctly mine, <laughs> but this one is sort of like just belongs to everybody else now. And that's, that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I wrote the poem in 2015 and um, because of the lag in publishing, it came out in June of 2016 and really went viral because of what was happening in the world that week. It was the Pulse nightclub shooting and it was the week that Joe Cox was murdered in England, the member of parliament who had young children. And, um, and the poem is short and able to grab in like a single little screenshot. And so, um, of course, none of this was in my mind <laughs> as I wrote it in a Starbucks. Um, yeah, so it, it became, it became a thing as, as the kids say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I do find it so helpful to, to think that 
a poem that is specifically about one thing to you can mean so many different things to so many different people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me every time the poem gets shared widely, um, it means something bad has happened. But also every, every time the poem is shared widely, I get to see sort of a new batch of comments about the poem. And I know we're not supposed to read them, but we do. <laughs> I think we do. And so, you know, for every person who thinks that it's hopeful, there are always people who think it's really depressing um, and are sort of offended that the person who's sharing it sort of brought it into their space. And, and so I, I feel like I'm, I'm still insisting after these last four years that the poem is a hopeful poem. It's just not only a right. hopeful poem, like it recognizes how dark things can be and are without ignoring the fact that there's still a lot of wonderful, beautiful stuff in the world too. And I think that really sums up this collection so well. Like I, I think you started out putting these affirmations. It's really, is that what you would, what do you call them? First? That's a really good question. It's, <laughs> we're all like, what are they? I call them notes to self. Notes um, to self. I've also referred to them as like small self pep talks, but neither of those is, is very like pithy or marketable. <laughs> so we're all like, um, is it a maxim? Is it an affirmation? Is it an aphorism? You know, like what, what is it? Um, I just call them notes to self. Notes to self. Well, you started, you started publishing them on Twitter. Tell me about writing about optimism and earnest hope on one of the most negative and cynical platforms that exists <laughs> during the hardest year during the life. hardest <laughs> it was the perfect storm of terrible um yeah yeah i started writing these notes to self to myself um when i was going through my divorce and it was really just to me trying to get myself through the day or maybe even just like the next two hour stretch, because let's face it, some days are such that we need to sort of chunk them to make them <laughs> more manageable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really, I posted them not because I thought they would touch other people or help other people or mean anything to anybody else. I really posted them as a way of coming clean um, because I, I do think that Sometimes our online lives yes. don't necessarily align with the life that we are living in our house with our people in our, and our jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy for people to see, say like your professional success or how it seems like you have it all together because the pictures that you post happen to be of days, you know, when your kids are behaving and your <laughs> house is clean. Um, and so it seemed important to, even though I didn't say at first what it was that I was going through, it took me a few months to kind of like get to that point. It, it was important to me to just share that I was struggling um, and be open about that. And yeah, it was scary, you know, being vulnerable in front of thousands of people is scary, but I also think like the more that we're all willing to do that and say like, look, this is the hard thing that I'm grappling with right now, then other people don't feel alone in whatever it is they're going through because the risk is that we 
we think we are a mess and everyone else has it together because that's what we're presenting. And so yes. it's, it's okay to say, Hey, I'm a kind of a mess right now. I'm really trying, but I'm kind of a mess right now. And, and to not be ashamed of being a mess to embrace being a mess. Um, but in a way that's not self-centered, which is, is so important now more than ever. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're all going through something. Yep. And some of us have like a whole constellation of things. I mean, all of us have a whole constellation of things, some more than others. I've been thinking about that a lot this year in particular, that the pandemic and the election cycle and all the social unrest that we've been dealing with, particularly in the States this year, feels like too much in itself. But all the, all the stuff we had in go, you know, going on in our lives in February didn't just get set down yeah. and like pressed paused on in March when all of this started happening so that we could just focus our attention on this. Like we're still carrying all the stuff we were carrying before in addition to everything that we're carrying now. Hey, it's Maris. If you're feeling overwhelmed right now, then you're a human being. There's a whole lot to be anxious about between the 24-7 news cycle, the pandemic, and quote-unquote divisive politics. We need to take care of our mental health and work through our emotions with a licensed therapist. Talkspace is making therapy affordable and accessible for all because we all need extra support to feel our best. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. No matter what, Talkspace will find you the right therapist to help you achieve your goals. It's affordable. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talking to my friends is so different from talking to a licensed therapist who has the expertise and knowledge to give me practical guidance. Talkspace gives us the support we need at an affordable price. As a listener of this podcast, you get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code MARISREVIEW to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's MARISREVIEW and Talkspace.com. I I didn't want to talk to you before the election because I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to seek reassurance from you in some way. Um, <laughs> and now we are post-election. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm making funny faces at you. I know. I, know. I do feel like you speak to the part of me that just wants to dwell on the negative <laughs> and just wants to worry and just wants to poke at the wound. Now, why do we do that? It's like, that hurts. I'm gonna keep pressing that because there's something about the hurt that I'm going to sort of, it's gonna be a focus point for me. We really do. I mean, we physically do that when we have something that physically mm -hmm. hurts us on our body, but I think we also mentally and emotionally pick at our own scabs um, in ways that don't help us. Yeah, and, and so much of 
reading the book as a collection, I can see the themes much more easily, which is like reshaping the narrative of one's life. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually learning that you have to use a set of tools to, to be able to do that. You talk about revision, um, both in the creative sense and then in then a broader sense. Yeah, it's my favorite part of writing, revision. I mean, I love, I love doing it on the page. It's much less comfortable doing it in one's life. <laughs> It feels very contained uh, and frankly quaint at this point to get to revise a story or a poem or an essay. Um, but when you're faced with revising your life, like what will I do for work next? What will my next relationship look like? What will my kids do? Where will I live? I mean, these big questions, that kind of level of revision is really daunting, but on the other hand, really exciting. Like the, the flip side of, of terror. <laughs> is is like the exhilarating part right like right. now I get to make it up myself uh -huh. you know it's you know because in some ways knowing is a kind of death like when you know what's going to happen next that's comforting in a way that stability and I think we all crave that but it's also I don't know it removes a lot of possibility and, and it can remove imagination and it can remove a lot of motivation to sort of carve out what the next thing might be. And so, yeah, when, when my life sort of imploded, um, I definitely spent a fair amount of time just being really sad and angry and confused. But then I thought, okay, but what else? Like, and mm -hmm. all these things are terrible. And what if some of it's really possibly great too? It's so funny how afraid we are of change when it's clearly inevitable yeah the only thing that the we story's can count better on. yeah totally totally as my as my now eight-year-old son says whenever something goes haywire he'll just say well worth it for the story and I, I mean he's eight and he's been saying that for like two years worth it for the story like oh, I caught a fish and then this thing happened and then my shoe fell in the water worth it for the story like Aww. and so I like I like that idea that you know, we, we are learning things about ourselves through this stuff and it doesn't balance the scales by any means. Like I would much rather have a more peaceful existence and know a little less about myself <laughs> to be frank, but, um, that was not an option. And so I'll take the wisdom, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I, I also love the idea that certainly I have a tendency to dwell and, I can replay a conversation over and over in my head a hundred different times. Um, it's already happened. I can't yeah. change it. But again, I guess that's, that goes back to picking at that scab. Oh, totally. I'm, I'm actually the queen of replaying a conversation that I want to have mm -hmm. over and over again in my head as if I can script it so that when I have the conversation, I'll know what to say and can also offer the other person their lines. Right. <laughs> that never works. That never works. And I think that so much of that is about being comfortable-ish to live in the now. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how. Yeah, how? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so much of Keep Moving is about getting unstuck. And so much of it is about sort of 
having a different relationship to uncertainty <laughs> is like the, maybe the best way I can put mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and sort of, I call myself a recovering pessimist in the book. And I think part of it is just wrapping your head around the fact that you don't know what's going to happen next. It's just not an option. It's not on the menu. Huh. We don't get to know, there's no like amount of money that would let us know. There's no, I mean, it's just, it's not in the cards for us to know. So how do we sit with that in a, in a better way? And I found that as, as a pessimist, which I have pretty much been my entire life, I couldn't sit with it. I just couldn't function with that level of uncertainty and being um, a sort of negative thinker at the same time. Like it was, I just was like at the bottom of a well, I was not functioning. And so I turned to trying optimism because I thought, you know, that's something that maybe I have in my power to change. Like my thought patterns are something that even if I can't change all of these decisions that are being made around me and feeling kind of helpless about, about life, which is I think how a lot of us are feeling right now. Like we are, a lot of life has been shifted or taken from us or changed in ways that we don't have power to do what we want to do, go where we want to go, see and hug who we want to see and hug. Um, And so just thinking about like, well, what can I change? Like, what do I actually have the power to change? And if not the situation, then the way I think about the situation, like that's where I can shift things. That's where I can reframe things. And so I started to think a little bit more about feeling uncertain and, and what the, what the upside of that is. Like if, if something burns down (laughs) around you, what are the silver linings of that? And it's kind of funny to think about like standing in like a charred ruin and being like, well, look at all this space I have to work with now, but that's (laughs) kind of, yeah, I mean, that's (laughs) exactly. I'm like, ah, that's kind of how I approached it. Like, well, if, this thing doesn't exist anymore, meaning the life that I'd had for the last almost 19 years, then what now? And it was sort of like a blank canvas or a blank page that I, you know, on one hand had to start over, but on the other hand, got to. Right. And, and that's one of the, the sort of like verb changes I've been trying on myself this year is like, oh, I have to do this. Well, what if I get to do it? What if I can trick myself mentally into seeing things as opportunities? Maybe that would be useful. And so I'm I'm working on that. I I like this idea that you discuss in your book of the fake it till you make it practice of hopefulness. Seems like that's the only thing we can do. Yeah. I mean, you don't wake up in the middle of like a contentious divorce and think like, I, I'm going to think positive today and it's going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, that just doesn't make any sense. So I say, I tried on hope like a garment, like every day and it was itchy and oversized and uncomfortable. And I just honestly couldn't wait to take it off and like put on something that felt better, <laughs> like sadness, for yeah. example, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, like a lot of ice cream, but honestly, it was so interesting to try to be hopeful every day, even though at first I didn't feel hopeful. What I found was that trying every day 
it worked and it didn't work in like a week sure. but over over time I could feel myself sort of like being able to sort of redirect my attention during the day and open my eyes to see some of the things that had I just been in that dark place like looking down in my little tunnel I would have missed those things those moments and also just the the nature of of posting um, before the, you know, the book became a book and it began as these posts, having sort of a real time conversation with mm-hmm. other people around these notes to self was so meaningful to me and continues to be so meaningful to me because I was really just sort of talking to myself from a very dark place. And then to have other people, you know, sometimes people I knew, other people in the literary community or whatever, or sometimes just complete strangers who had this thing, you know, retweeted into their, into their feed. And they would say like, oh my gosh, I needed this today. Or, you know, this is exactly what I, my sister needs to hear this so much. I'm sending this to her. Or um, I wish I had read this like six months ago when I was going through my hardest time. And just frankly feeling kind of useful at a time where I was feeling very useless mm-hmm. helped, you know, kind of like lift me up and buoy me during that time too. And, and I love how um, this hopefulness about that you're trying to instill in yourself also works so well in the creative realm. Like that, that, that you don't have to be afraid of the blank page, that there's possibility there. Exactly. I feel like I've been blocked for <laughs> ages. This is, a, this is a hard year to work in, I think. I mean, I'm writing a lot right now, but it's only because it's the one thing I do that makes me feel really, really good. Or the one thing that I still can do. Like I would love to be like seeing bands live every night. That would really be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the one thing that makes me feel good. And it's also the thing that it's, it's that sense of possibility. Like when I have a new project, that's like such an exciting thing where I'm like, I think I, I think I have an idea for X or I think I mm-hmm. just, wrote my way into this new thing. I think this is going to be a thing. What a great feeling yeah. that is. And I feel like we're all chasing that all the time. Like what's okay. the next mm-hmm. exciting creative breakthrough? And, you know, I think we should let ourselves off the hook this year that we don't need to be super productive um, or, you know, be bettering ourselves necessarily in this year. We just need to get through the best we can safe mm-hmm. and, and healthy but if, if we do, if we are able to tap into some creative stuff this year, wonderful. It's a bonus. And, and I love the idea, too, that you built this community around people who, who are also struggling and, and want to try to be hopeful. And it's amazing to me how much our online communities at this point are a lifeline during the pandemic. Oh, so much. I mean, in in some ways, you know, it it always, it has been for years because so many of, so many of, especially my writer friends, we live all over. Right. Um, Everybody's, you know, working or teaching or, or doing whatever, it's all spread out. And so 
you know, maybe we get together once a year for a conference or we bump into each other if we're on book tour or something. But for the most part, like we interact on Twitter. So I, I, it is, it is sort of a, it can be kind of a hellscape, um, (laughs) but it's also like, can also be like a very kind and supportive neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel very lucky that I I've managed to have Twitter for me feel by and large, like a very kind, supportive, you know, casserole sharing kind of neighborhood, (laughs) you know, where people might come over and rake your leaves while they're doing their yard too, you know, and even during the election season, when things get really sort of poisonous, it, it was still generally speaking, like a healthy space for me to spend time in. And, and I, I think because people are mostly good and it's easy to forget that when the ones who aren't are yelling so loudly and using all capital letters and exclamation points. Um, but the rest of us are still there. And um, I, I choose to, to focus my attention on the people who are doing the right thing. That's, that's good. Tell me a little bit about crafting these notes to yourself as, you know, as a form. Because Twitter, of course, has its own limitations and constraints. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, it's funny. Sometimes people people are like, oh, I loved that poem. And I'm like, it's not a poem. (laughs) And I probably get overly defensive about that as a poet. Whereas if I were, you know, purely essayist and someone called it a poem, I'd probably be like, oh, I wrote a poem. (laughs) Um, But I don't think of them as poems. I don't approach them the same way I approach my poems. Um, I think you know the thing they have in common with poems is that they're concise and most of them have some metaphor in them often pulled from the natural world. Uh, and I do, I think, pay attention to sort of syntax and sentence rhythm and sound in them. And that's because I write everything as a poet. So it's not, right. it's not like a setting I can turn off um, to access like prose writer mode or something <laughs> um, for better or for worse. So really most of those I would write first thing in the morning, you know, before I'd have my coffee, before I had, you know, done really anything. Oftentimes, you know, lying in bed in the dark, like grabbing my phone off the bedside table and just sort of thinking through like, how am I feeling right now? what's the dominant emotion? Is it anxiety? Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it exhaustion? Mm-hmm. Like, what am I feeling? What do I need to tell myself? Like, what conversation do I need to have with myself right now to kind of set the tone for the day? And then I would just write my way into that, um, usually in the notes function in my phone. Mm-hmm. And then I would copy paste it into Twitter. And then I would see all the red from where I had, over, <laughs> <laughs> I had overdone the character, you know, I'd gone over and then I would have to revise for space really. And so I was like, well, do I really need that second adjective? You know, I'm a, I'm a poet. So I'm used to being concise and having to, to have like an economy of language. Um, Twitter makes it extra difficult sometimes. Yes to get everything like, I'm like, can I thread this? Do I really have to say this in one little tiny bite-sized bit? Um, but that was really the practice. I didn't, I didn't like labor over them very long because it, it for me was not literary writing, it was functional writing. Like it was functional text. 
um, like a recipe or instructions, like something that I was giving to myself to help myself just get up and get from point A to point B in my day. Um, and I think the, the literariness of it is just because I'm a poet. <laughs> I can't turn it off. If, if I wrote a cookbook, it would probably be a very poetic cookbook. <laughs> Maggie, are you, are you writing poetry now? I'm, yeah, I am. I'm working on another book of poems right now. Um, I'm working on more essays. Like I, um, I'm, I'm always working on both. And I, I think I tend to, if I have an idea, I try it as a poem first, because that's my sort of home genre. So I kind of default. It's like Garamond 12 is my <laughs> default um, font. Um, poem is my default mode. So if I have an idea, I try it in a poem container. And if I feel like I'm in an extreme tiny house and cannot like move or say the things that I want to say, and I need more space or backstory or, or room to kind of like chat more with the reader, then I tend to abandon it as a poem and I'll, I'll consider writing all the way to the right-hand margin. <laughs> I love that. Maggie, what have you been reading that you would like to recommend? I have been reading so much in part because um, this year I've been really trying to spend a lot of money at independent bookstores. Thank you. We thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, Father's Day, Mother's Day, every birthday, like everybody who got anything from me got like a stack of books. And I think after a while they were like, really? It was kind of like getting you know, like, <laughs> like a fruit basket or something, but um, it's good for everyone. It's a win-win. So I've been reading a ton. I picked um, a couple uh, one of them that I just finished pretty recently is called On Lighthouses, and it's uh, Jasmina Barrera, translated by Christina McSweeney. Huh. And it is, I'm not going to describe it too much because I feel like trying to describe this book would be like trying to paraphrase a poem, which would sort of just kills the thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, um, a sort of obsessive tour of various lighthouses using metaphor, bringing in history, talking, using, you know, there are you know, like an arcade fire song is referenced and Virginia Woolf is referenced. And oh, it's just, this, not? it's such a, a beautiful, like eclectic, never read anything before quite like it book on lighthouses. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a just, I went into a, um, to a bookstore and it was like on display and it was described as like poetic and meditative and philosophical. And I was like, well, you, you all know how to describe a book to make me buy it. So I'll take <laughs> which, one. Which bookstore, Maggie? Um, that one, I went into um, $2 Radio Headquarters. Oh, amazing. Which is also um, one of my favorite vegan restaurant so I can go actually I'm going tonight to pick up my Friday night vegan <laughs> and um, I have to sign a couple books there and then probably I'll buy some because I can't go in without buying. no you can't it's such a great place That's great um, the other one I've been reading is uh, brand new it's Catherine Pierce's new book of poems danger days and it's like a high anxiety um, it's sort of poems that deal with climate change and the current political environment and 
uh, anxiety around parenting through this world that somehow we have handed our children. I know it's surprising that I would like a book of poems <laughs> that, <laughs> that deals with that, but it's, um, it really is just like a book of poems for right now, like this moment. So I'm so glad to have it. And then I won't say much about this one, but I am rereading the order of time. Oh yeah. Um, by Carlo Ravelli and um, I read it at the beach a few years ago. It's a weird beach read. Just going to go ahead and throw that out there. Yes. Um, but uh, just thinking, you know, being so, um, t- my, my relationship to time this year, I think our relationship oh, yes. to time this year is so bizarre that I wanted to go back and read this book in this current environment and see how my reading sort of shifts and I'm finding my old notes Mm. in the book from the beach um, from, you know, several years ago when I lived a completely different life. And that in itself, reading a book of time and realizing how much has changed has been fascinating. So I I highly recommend that one too. So annotate your books too. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like they're yours, write in them. Yes. My children are I'm absolutely incredulous at the fact that I write in my books and dog ear pages. And my son is like, why are you writing in that book? And it's like, because it's mine. Like I, it's not the libraries. Like I bought this book and I can do what I want to it. I love that. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much, Maggie. This was a pleasure. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.